Reminds me of a scene from Men in Black where Will Smith, you make, I make this look good. <laughs> Not sure if it's true, but anyway. So, uh, this kind of bittersweet week ahead of us when uh, a huge number of students on the screen, although some of them were double counted there, I'd like to point out, um, are leaving us. And uh, it's, um, it's a difficult week in some ways because uh, we've come to uh, have great affection for those who are leaving and uh, we kind of feel responsible for you and a little bit anxious as you head out. Uh, so I've got three sermons this week to address the uh, valedictorians. And it's a bit like the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount? When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. So the disciples came and the would-be disciples were in the background. He just addressed the disciples and then the other crowd was eavesdropping. So that's what's happening today. I'm addressing the valedictorians and the rest of you uh, would-be graduates, we'll see about that, are uh, um, listening in. Now, this sermon series is actually about fulfilling a vow or at least an ill-considered public promise. We had a preaching conference back here in August on Old Testament narrative and I gave my customary greeting at the beginning and uh, Paul Barker, the good bishop, was there and uh, I confessed foolishly that it had been some time since I'd preached Old Testament narrative. So for the rest of the conference, uh, Paul Barker gave a dig. And so at the end of the conference, I uh, got up and, and gave my vow, I'll be preaching Old Testament narrative in week 12, Ridley College, Tuesday to Thursday. So here's the fulfilment of my rash promise. <laughs> Lindsay and Anthea, you'll remember, of course, started a sermon series on the Joseph narrative back in semester one, wasn't it? So the Joseph narrative goes from 37 to 50. They got somewhere in the beginning. I'm going to finish it off and you can work on the middle bit. So today we're looking at a mature faith. Tomorrow, the test of character. And on Thursday, unfulfilled promise. So to those who are leaving or eavesdropping, we hope this about your study at college, that it won't just be about your education. Yep, that's something we all understand. Uh, where I did my first theological study, one of the advertising slogans was more than a degree. Yep, so there's more to what we're doing for you, we hope anyway, than simply offering you an education and a degree. So I looked up our values uh, online <laughs> to see what we're actually aiming for. Our advertising would seem to indicate we're aiming that you'll travel far and wide. But uh, apart from that, the first one relates to education, learning, high academic standards, blah, blah, blah. So that's what we've been aiming for, you'll know by now. Uh, but the next three are really about your maturity, formation, uh, Christ-like character, etc., community, relationships, and then mission and ministry, having a global vision and being equipped to serve God in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. Yep, that's the, uh, the line all of you knew, I'm sure. I won't ask because that'll be uh, a bit disappointing. So <laughs> maturity is what we're about. Yep, we're hoping you'll grow up. And uh, I mean that uh, respectfully. And, uh, but that's, that's really one of the great images of what it means to be a believer who's been travelling on the road for some time, to come to a mature faith. 
And that's what we see in Genesis, uh, the end of 47 and 48. We see Jacob, or Israel, same guy, who uh, comes to the end of his life, is on his deathbed, and he says certain things that teach us about what it means to have a mature faith. Now, I'm not wanting to compare leaving college with an impending death, (laughs) although it's tempting in some cases. Um, But the passage does give us some teaching which I think is really helpful for namely the promises of God, how we relate to the promises of God, and our faith. So we learn three things, I think, from Jacob Israel's example, that at a crossroads, a mature faith does three things. The first thing is a mature faith looks forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. Have a look with me at uh, the end of chapter 47, uh, verses 28 and following. So uh, Jacob's uh, very old, his sight is failing, he's literally on his deathbed, and he summons Joseph, his favourite son, not recommended by the way, but he does have a favourite son in this case, and he says to him, if Joseph, I've found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. So it's a really serious, heavy moment. Uh, it's not like he just asks once, he prefaces, is, prefaces it with a big if, which we might say since, because he has found favour in his son's eyes. And he makes Joseph make <clears throat> a solemn vow. And uh, um, he says to Joseph, if you want to show me compassion and loyalty, I have a big request. Now, the last time someone put their hand under someone's thigh was uh, Abraham, back in chapter 24, Um, where uh, he was uh, sending out the servant, you'll remember, to get a a wife for Isaac, Jacob's father. So this is is a a custom in, in the ancient world at this time. And he makes him swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. So this is a really heavy request. So we're kind of waiting with bated breath. What's the request going to be? And we get down to the end of 29, and it's this. Do not bury me in Egypt. So it's a kind of say what? It's a really weird request, don't you think? It's a very odd moment. But when I rest with my fathers, euphemism for dying, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. So three, again, three times he brings this request. How does Joseph respond? Joseph says, I'll do as you say. So you think Jacob would be happy, but he's not. Verse 31, swear to me. Then uh, Joseph swears to him, And finally, Israel, Jacob, worships as he leans on the top of his staff. So this enormous determination, and for some reason, there's a great significance to not being buried in Egypt, but rather in the promised land. So what's going on here? Jacob is exercising his faith in the promises given to his grandfather, Abraham. So right throughout the uh, book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, for that matter, You've got the promises to Abraham in chapters 12, 15, 17, etc., which get affirmed to Isaac and then to Jacob and then through Joseph and then on through the rest of the Bible. And those promises concern a few things, you'll remember, uh, namely land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, hence his uh, wanting to go back to the promised land because he's come from the promised land, uh, thankfully, because Joseph's looking after him and his brothers and their families in Egypt. 
seed. So uh, a, a holy family, uh, a line of seed, a righteous line will emerge from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then blessing, blessing not just for his family, but for the whole world. So this really is a big deal. So students who are leaving or staying, we should learn from this lesson. A mature faith looks forward to the promises of God being fulfilled and holds onto them for dear life. A mature faith holds on to the promise of God to bless the world. Jacob had played his part in the fulfilment of these promises. Uh, however, imperfectly, he'd had uh, children, basically, and he'd sought to serve God in the meantime. And we can play our part. Jacob's life has lots of ups and downs. Uh, but nonetheless, he stays focused on God's promise to bless the world. We, we as it turns out, have the same promises except we're further along in their fulfilment because the seed of Abraham who really took the promises forward, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no accident that the New Testament opens with Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, because the Davidic covenant and the new covenant developed those promises. And there are lots of other promises we hold on to. The promise of eternal life, the famous John 3, 16, uh, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth the promise of our names being written in the book of life. That's what we hold on to dearly. They are God's sure word to us. So that's the first lesson we see, friends, from this remarkable narrative at the end of Genesis, that we should look forward to the fulfilment of God's promises. Lots of things in the present will discourage us. Lots of things in the present won't go well. Some will go well. But the main thing is to hold on to the promise, to cling to those promises to the very end. And the reason Jacob can hold on to the promise the way he, he does and say, I want to go back to Canaan and be buried there is because his whole life he's, that, he's had that in focus. A mature faith looks forward to the fulfilment of the promises. Don't bury me here in Egypt. Bury me in the land of of promise. Secondly, a mature faith looks back on God's past blessings. And that's what uh, Jacob does in the opening verses of chapter 48. So you get uh, Joseph, his favorite son, comes to him and uh, Jacob rallies in strength. And he says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase in numbers. Now, for you biblical theologians, that just uh, rings bells all over the place, doesn't it? Because Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and increase. And then in the Exodus, they uh, are told to be fruitful and increase. And then in the book of Acts, they are fruitful and increase. It's still all about the promises. Um, he says, I will make you a community of peoples. The promise of the seed is in focus here. I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. So we live in complicated times, friends, and it is hard to uh, stay optimistic in the present. And one way to stay optimistic is to remember those moments when God has revealed himself to us, when we've learnt things at college or otherwise that have made such a big difference in our lives. What's your Luz moment? What are you kind of hanging on to that uh, will 
uh, encourage you in the present by looking back at when God blessed you. Um, uh, Luz was uh, Jacob's Led Zeppelin moment because he's got this stairway to heaven (laughs) happening. And uh, he says, I'll give to you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Uh, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. So it's this revelation from God that uh, he holds on to. And we too, I think, can point to times, I hope you can, when God has revealed himself to you in a remarkable way. You might not say God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, but you could say God Almighty appeared to me when I was studying for this essay or when I was in this lecture or even when I was in chapel. And I learned about servant leadership. I learned about humility. I learned about being in Christ. I learned about grace. I learned about obedience. I learned about minding the gap, smelling the roses and joining the dots. <laughs> so those wonderful moments that you'll remember from your study here at college, I, 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 I urge you to hold on to them and to remember them because there'll be times when things will be pretty dry and difficult and to remember what God has taught you is of fundamental importance. Then in verses 15 and 16, we get something similar. He says, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac, it just droops with the covenant promises here, doesn't it? Walked faithfully. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm. So God's shepherding kindness is what he remembers. And I think that's, again, a really good tip if you want to have a mature faith. You've got to look back at those times in your life when God has protected you, when he's uh, uh, provided for you, hopefully at college, uh, certain friendships, perhaps financially, health-wise, your church family, your accommodation. Our lives are not going to be a blaze of glory, so we need to hang on to those significant moments and uh, treasure them and look back and say, God showed his shepherding kindness to me, and that's the reason I can keep going. Uh, there's going to be a lot of discouragement and one of the great challenges uh, in, in, in Christian life and life generally is not to get too discouraged. And one way to do it is to look forward to the promises being fulfilled. The other way is to look back at the times when God's revealed himself in special ways and God has shown you great kindness. He also recalls Rachel's death, you'll see, and I kind of scratched my head there uh, in verse 7 and, and following. And uh, the commentators were no help whatsoever. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's partly him looking back at his life. And uh, this wasn't a great moment, uh, the death of his uh, beloved Rachel. But he still puts that in the context of God's shepherding kindness. So um, I've talked about what to look forward to in the future, what to look back on in the past. What about the present? I mean, let's get real. What are you going to do to have a mature faith in the present? And from the rest of the chapter, what I think we learn is that a mature faith looks around at the surprising ways in which God acts. What do I mean? Well, in verse 8, Israel, Jacob, saw the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, you'll remember, and he asks, who are these? So the old bloke's getting a bit hard of seeing. Uh, He says, these are the sons God's given me, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them near to me so that I can bless them. And he puts them on his knees. Just such a beautiful scene. 
Um, Joseph, not surprisingly, expects his sons to be blessed in the order of their age and kind of arranges them carefully. Uh, Manasseh over here, Ephraim over here, so just get it right, Dad. And he should have seen it coming, I reckon, but anyway. (laughs) Hadn't he read the rest of Genesis, but anyway. So Israel's eyes were failing because of old age he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close. His father kissed them and embraced them. It's just dripping with pathos. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. Just a beautiful moment. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees, bowed down with his face to the ground. That was his first mistake. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right and uh, Manasseh on his left. So you've got the picture. Manasseh's old, Ephraim's younger. So he's hoping that uh, moving in like that, you get the right hand on the right kid. Um, but look what happens next, verse 14. Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head. And he reached out his left hand and put it on Manasseh's head. And uh, he crosses his arms over and then he blesses them. Uh, Verse 17, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. That's kind of understatement. So he took hold of his father's hand and he tried to move him back again the other way. It's uh, it's quite dramatic. And uh, Joseph said to him, no, father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head, you git. So, but his father refuses and says, here's the words to remember, I know my son, I know. So it was quite intentional and deliberate. And he reassures him that they'll both get blessed, but uh, um, he says, uh, he put, verse 20, Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. Again, the promise right in front of us. And uh, to you, I will give one more ridge of land than to your brothers, uh, the ridge I took from the Amorites with my sword and bows. This is one of God's even though moves. Even though one son was older than the other, he blessed the younger. Completely against the customs and expectations of the day. The older child, the firstborn, was meant to be the heir. We all know that. And of course, this recalls chapter 25, where uh, the Lord said to Rebekah, Isaac's wife, uh, Jacob's mother, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated, one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So Jacob knew this, Joseph is learning it. And this, friends, is God's signature move. This is what we've got to look for in the present. When uh, he takes human expectations and reverses them. Uh, The Magnificat from Luke 1. God brings down rulers from thrones and lifts up the humble. Which is really an echo of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Uh, She who was barren has borne seven children... But the one who had many sons pines away. Then listen to this line, incredibly prophetic. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Because as we all know, the signature move of God is still cross-shaped. It's when Jesus goes to, the, uh, to death and then God raises him from the dead. 
Blessing the younger brother over the older speaks of God's grace. Ultimately, it's only God's grace to which we must look for fruitful service in the kingdom. We don't depend on our education, our gifts, our position, our human resources, our personality, our energy, our passion, but rather God's kindness, his shepherding love, his surprising twists that reverse the world's expectations. God loves to confound human brilliance and strength. He loves to say, this one is my firstborn, the less impressive one. And in response, he says to us when we complain, I know, my son or daughter, I know, but this is the way it is. Now, uh, at another college I was at, there are a couple of students, I'll call them Jeff and Jack, just to not give away names. So Jeff was uh, brilliant academically, and everyone expected him to uh, uh, just be a, a, a blaze of glory. Uh, I had a research project on humility. Some of you wonder why it hasn't helped. But, uh, um, and uh, um, I, he was the guy I employed. Yep, so he knew all about uh, Greek and all sorts of stuff that I pretend to know about, semiotics and who knows what. And I got him to do the work. And uh, he went out into ministry. Then there was another guy from the country, uh, not terribly impressive, um, just scraping through. So uh, the one guy ended up shipwrecking his, uh, his life and his work, tragically, terribly. And the other guy is in the country, toiling away unimpressively, but nonetheless faithfully. God says, I know my son or daughter, I know. That's the point. Because if crossing hands is God's signature move, what he did at the cross is exactly that. He showed that it's not through human brilliance and strength that God's work is done, but rather through weakness and foolishness. God chose the weak things to shame the strong and the foolish things to shame the wise. Now, I'm not the first to read of Jacob's last words as teaching about the nature of a mature faith. Hebrews 11 Verse 21 says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on his staff. Interesting, isn't it? All of Jacob's life, the one thing that the author of the Hebrews picks up and commends him for was the fact that he looked forward to the promise. He understood the grace of God in our world and in his life. So I think we do uh, learn... Uh, brothers and sisters, from Jacob, what it means to live by faith. Jacob was convinced that God's designs are unshakable, that the promises were being worked out under God's care, even though there are a lot of uh, uh, twists and turns on the way. And we too have to stake our lives on those promises. Then God willing, at the end of our lives, like Jacob, we can bow our heads in worship of God in anticipation of their final fulfilment. A mature faith looks forward to the fulfilment of God's promises. A mature faith uh, teaches us about uh, uh, God's shepherding kindness and protection and holds those lessons in mind. And a mature faith looks around at God's surprising acts of grace in the present. Amen. many promises and so I'm going to encourage us um, we're going to remind ourselves of who this God is by